Hey, welcome back to The Craft. I'm Colby, and I'm here with my friend Carter. And today we're going to talk about the power of compound interest for the creative. So I'm going to kind of start us out today. Normally Carter would dive into our introduction, but I'm going to start us out today and just kind of lay a little groundwork, share where these ideas came from and what I want to dig into today. And we're just going to kind of see where we go from here. Uh, So I'm really excited about this. There's been a number of different things that I've read this summer, and I'll get into those in a second. But really, the big idea that's kind of been a thread between all these things I've read has been the power of compound interest. There's the famous quote that's attributed to Einstein that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And I actually just read the other day that it's not actually proven that he said that, but that in itself is pretty, I think it said that in itself is an example of compound interest in the fact that he is still being attributed to quotes that he never came up with hundreds of years or or however many years after his death. And, um, that, that was kind of humorous to me. I read that in a book by, uh, I think it was in zero to one by Peter Thiel the other day. But so there's, there's been this idea of compound interest that's really been striking me. And so I want to just list off a couple of the places and the big ideas that I've found, and then we can dig into them. So the first place that I can remember most recently is uh, reading about, or these are going to be out of order, let's be honest. Uh, The first one that comes to mind, though, is Effortless by Greg McEwen. So in this book, Greg McEwen's a best-selling author. He wrote the book Essentialism that really talks about high level. If you have a jar of time, you got to put the big rocks in first and then the pebbles and then the sand. Otherwise, you put the sand and the pebbles in first, the big rocks won't fit. It's all about prioritizing your life essentially and doing the essential things only. His second book, Effortless, is all about, okay, what do you do if those big rocks, those big priorities are the only thing in the jar and they still don't fit? Like, How do you break those things apart and make things more effortless in your life? Because there is a he hit a point in his life where he he had already taken away everything that wasn't important, but he still didn't have enough time in his life to get those important things done. So what do you do? You have to figure out how to do things more effortlessly. And in that book, he has this whole chapter dedicated to building out, using the power of what he, uh, give me one second to recall the term. Okay. So the term he uses is effortless results. And he has this whole chapter on how to get effortless results by using compounding practices in your life. So essentially just setting up systems and automation and repeating things, building out systems in your life that can compound on themselves. And he kind of took this idea and pushed it way further than I'd thought, right? Everyone's heard about, you know, automating things, delegating them, getting them off your plate to save time. But he pushed the idea further that if you make a decision to work out every day, if you make a decision of what route you take to work every day, if you make a decision of how you spend the first hour of your morning doing some morning pages and writing every single day, you've made a decision that compounds because you wake up every single day and that habit and decision serves you each day. That's a compound that, that grows on itself. So that was one, one really powerful area because he just really expanded it from beyond just, it's not just a financial idea. And obviously the point of this episode is to see how does compound interest apply to your life as an artist and a creative. But he he applied it to not just the, the finances, but the systems in your life and the daily habits and then the relationships, how relationships compound. 
Then another reading this summer, um, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. So kind of a collection of his tweets and podcast episodes and things he's written online. And in that, he's got a whole section on that, that is about wealth. And so it's more on the financial side of this compounding conversation, but he applies compounding to relationships as well. And really a big idea in that book is um, the famous quote from Archimedes that give me a lever and long enough and a place to stand and I can move the earth. And he talks a lot about how to use leverage in your life in order to um, get outsized returns. And so kind of applying that same idea, compound interest is one of the biggest ways, one of the biggest levers that we can have in life. Um, and then the the other place is recently just like following uh, Jack Butcher on Twitter and the Visualized Value brand on Twitter. He talks a lot about compound interest and uh, just the power of doing something once and getting the results many times over. And so he's got this tweet that um, I can link to in the description below where there's this kind of graph. Imagine just a simple chart left to right with showing the the growth in your craft or the growth in something that you're working on. And just the chart's completely flat for like 90% of the, you know, left to right journey. And then at the very end, like it's a classic compound curve, right? So there's tiny, there's, there's no growth almost at the beginning. And then at the very end that shoots up, right? And there's that idea that most of the uh, one last book, The Psychology of Money, by Morgan Housel, just read that. His chapter on compounding talked about how most of Warren Buffett's wealth, like something like $84 billion, was made after his 65th birthday. And our minds just can't really comprehend that. The curve goes up all the way at the end. But anyways, in this Jack Butcher picture, there's just this simple line in the middle. There's there's a flat line. And right before it starts to grow up, there's this quote, this is pointless. And it's almost just visualizing like, this person who gives up right before things actually take off because it seems pointless for so long and all the results, the outsized returns of compounding happen at the end of something towards the end of its life. That's true for investments. So how might that be true for working on an album where it feels like you're making no progress week after week after week. And then like all of a sudden, boom, 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 things start falling into place. And um, how does this imply to, writing a dissertation or your overall journey, like becoming a photographer and struggling for months and years, but then slowly those habits and skills start to build on each other and there's momentum. And then that upward trend right at the end kind of comes in. So those were some of the different sort of inspirations. And obviously compounding is a big topic. It's talked about a lot. It's mostly talked about in the financial realm. So I'd love to just bring this into how do we look at the things that we do as creatives and artists and see an opportunity for long-term growth in the small habits day-to-day. And um, really, it's about like a long-term perspective, I think. So I dropped a lot there for you. I'd love to hear kind of what stuck out, where you want to take this. I really like this because we've got this nice shotgun start where we got a bunch of things at play here. And the two things that really have come to my mind as you're talking here is first, it seems like we're dealing with like a principle that seems to be multidisciplinary. 
like the idea of compound growth seems to be true like if you're thinking like monetarily but also even like true artistically and this is really what's driving us to do this episode is it seems to be some sort of principle about how things work and so one of the examples that I was thinking of is like we can even see this play out like if you're learning an instrument if you pick up a guitar or something you're not going to do much on it for a while. But then when you start learning like a chord and you get your G chord down and you have your D chord down and your C chord, all of a sudden you can play hundreds of thousands of songs, right? And so it's like there's that big compound growth and then you start adding things to it and you keep expanding the repertoire of what you can play. And it just seems like when wherever you put this – whether it be learning a sport or learning an instrument or working, you know, even just investing, uh, wherever you put this principle, it seems to be something like even, I don't know, like something you could do with like the Pareto principle of the 80-20 rule. It's like one of those things that seem to be really, really flexible and oftentimes indicative of how things work. And so I guess my first thought here was just, man, this seems to be like a multidisciplinary thing. So why not think about this in regards to our artistic work? It definitely can seem like, oh, compound interest is something for your IRA, but it might also be something for how you structure your schedule every week. So I think right. it's worthwhile thinking that way. The second thing I was thinking about is the idea of the lever and the tool. I mean, if you've done any sort of building or any sort of kind of physical work, you know that the tool is a huge thing. And we've done episodes where we've talked about how important artistic tools can be, right? If you don't have the right tool and you're trying to tighten a screw with a penny, it's going to be a pain. And, and this kind of brings in some of McEwen's stuff of effortless, right? There's something about having the right tools and conceiving of compound interest as a tool is a really interesting idea. And so the last thing that I'll say is one that you didn't mention, which we've talked about a lot, of Kaizen, like the idea of like adding 1% every day, like just get a little bit better. And then that 1%, right, starts to compound and becomes really substantial. And so I think this might be like a paradigm thing. And so thinking about how this episode fits within what we do here at The Craft, you know, mm -hmm. we're thinking about this in sustain, you know, as one of our creative first principles here. Right. Of this is something that you can use as a tool which you can sustain. And so I think this is, I mean, I think we're really trying within this episode, yeah, we want to think about compound interest and we want to think about what does it look like to apply this? And so maybe that's a direction to take us. Like what does application look like here? Yeah. I think that that's really where Greg McEwen did such a great job with his book. So there was a lot of practical takeaways and I can pull up my notes from that too, if that'd be helpful to talk about, but there were so many practical ways that he took building out uh, a simple system or making a decision or building a habit. Those are kind of three, three ways you can think about compounding like three practical applications, but to back up for a second, I totally agree with you that really to, it's almost a summary of the whole intro I gave that, of course, I'm seeing this everywhere because this is a mental model. This is like a framework that says something about sort of something that's a general truth or principle. It's a principle. And it's a so mental you, model. I think that's the right word for it. Right. And and since it's that 
principle, mental model, like concept, it's something you can apply pretty loosely across so many different things. So, I mean, I think that's, that's why it's so interesting because if I can really keep like learning and trying to understand how compound interest works, how can I apply it to other areas of my life? Cause like just sharing in this episode and trying to figure out how to apply it one way, doesn't really like, it's like teach a man to fish. Don't, you know what I mean? Don't just give him a fish, that type of thing, which is super cliche, but. What's the Ron Swanson quote? He's like, he's a grown man. He should know how to fish or something <laughs> like that. Oh my gosh. But That's yeah, great. so let's, to drill down on one of this, I think continuing this this vein of thought, you mentioned systems. So what is it about, and maybe you can get into some McEwen stuff, but you don't have to. What is it about, you think, systems? Why is that a method to tap into this principle? The way that I, the first thing that comes to mind is that it removes decision-making. If you have to make the same decision over and over, it, it removes that decision. The silly example that comes to mind is Steve Jobs wearing the same like black turtleneck and, te- and jeans every day because it removes the decision of what you have to wear from the equation. That's one less thing to think about every morning. Um, I'm pretty sure that's that's true story. Probably should fact check me on that. But that, you know, it's like if you have a standard operating procedure, as they say in business, you know, and you've identified whenever... I start every time I start a project, for example, like every time, let's say every time I start a new song, I'm going to load up this template. I'm going to follow these steps. I'm every, every song I do always requires these same steps, no matter what it sounds like or what it, what the subject is or which artist I'm working with. You are removing like five or six decisions from the day of whenever you're not as motivated, whenever you're distracted the classic example that he talks about is the number of, or that I've read, at least read somewhere this summer, and I can't remember if it was from him or not, but the checklists that pilots use before every flight have literally saved so many lives because they actually, there was a point where some newer planes came out that were more complicated, so many buttons to press, so many things to do, and there was some unnecessary accidents that happened just because people didn't follow the system correctly and basically because their mind was distracted on too many things. And so a system lowers the lift on your mind by just giving you, you know, here's a checklist. Here's the things that I can, that I have to do. And so then the thinking is done for you in that space. And I think that that airline example of a pilot following the same checklist on every flight is really helpful because of course you still need the pilot. Of course you still need the decisions to be made in the moment. But that checklist is like, I think there's almost a kickback sometimes. Like, why would I build a system for this? It's so easy. It's so simple. But there were literal plane crashes happening in certain flights mm-hmm. in certain bigger airlines or bigger um, airplanes, aircraft, because you might be able to make a simple decision. But when you pile up simple decisions, five other things on your mind, you're tired, you need coffee, three things just happened. Someone made a comment in the hallway. It's like, you forget the most important thing and you crash the plane. So remove that lift from yourself by building a system. That makes so much sense. And I think too, if we directly apply it to like compound compounding, Mm -hmm. you've already thought about these things, right? So let's say like for you, like, right. If, if you spend, let's say, I don't know, two years learning, what are the things that I need to do every time I go down to produce a song? Right. 
if you have to do that every time, then you're you're staying kind of plateaued. But by making a system, you're almost right materializing what you've learned. And so then your starting point can be on the third story and not the ground floor. Right. So that's the opportunity for compounding is that now you're starting on the third floor. And so you put your same amount of energy in, but you're starting higher up so you can go higher up. And if you're systematizing, I think systematizing for me seems to be a way. And admittedly, I'm not very good at building systems. So this is where I think something that you're much better at than I am. But systematizing seems to be a way to lock in growth almost. Hmm. To you know, I don't think the system, it can be, it's a temptation to think of the system as something constraining, but I don't think it has to be constraining. I think the system can really become a way in which, hey, this works for me, and I'm going to lock in that growth. Actually, I've kind of gone on a little bit of a side here. I was getting students to do a, a kind of our first project this semester, which was a, a working spaces assignment. And basically, it asked them to think about the places and the spaces where they were writing and reading. And what I was hoping to do with some of this is to start to think about, okay, what habits do I have? Like what systems – like we have systems in place sometimes that are unconscious, like it's our default mode. And so when we start reflecting on, okay, what is my actual system here? Sometimes it's like, oh, I don't have a system. Or sometimes it's like, oh, I have a yeah. system and it's it's broken, right? I've got these habits that I always go back to my phone, right? My phone's mm-hmm. sitting there and I'm always going back to it, right? Okay, that's a system. It's just an unseen one. And so mm-hmm. it seems like systems are a way in which we can lock in growth, which allows us to start higher up. I don't know. Does that make, I think that, Definitely. does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's really well said. And that was a good example too. Uh, and then there, there's other, the, what were the other two that I mentioned? There's, there's definitely systems are a way to compound, but then I think the other two are habits and decisions. So really quickly diving into the second one, habits, really habits and decisions are almost intertwined actually now that I think about it, but sticking with this for a moment, I think the examples that come to mind are choosing to exercise, which admittedly I'm really bad at that habit. Building a consistent routine of when you do your craft. That is something that I've been doing recently that's been really fruitful for me. Just deciding I'm going to wake up and I'm going to work from 6.30 to 7.30 on music or learning something new or working on song maps, whatever the project is. That's been really useful for me because I don't wake up and say, like, ah, do I want to work today? Like, Is the motivation there? Like, it's like, there's mornings where I'm like, ah, I'm kind of tired, but I'm like, well, it's time to wake up because I made that decision like a month ago. And I I am seeing the compounding because it's getting easier to wake up earlier, but also because I just, it's a built-in system in in my life. My, the people that I work with know kind of to expect an update around, you know, 7.30 to 8 in the morning on things. Like there's just a sort of like ancillary benefits to it that, are slowly I'm seeing more value in. And that's not to say I'll do it forever, but I think the sort of an idea to tie in here that's interesting is that I in the Psychology of Money book, I just read it, talked about how the, I think it was Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, one of the two who said the most important thing about compound interest is to not disrupt it. Hmm. Because the great, what are the, what is compound interest? Compound interest is you 
put in an investment and that investment makes money and then, or makes, earns something, I'll say, to keep it more general. Yeah. And then those earnings then are reinvested and make more earnings and then it grows on itself, right? And really the factors you have are how much do you put in and then how much time do you wait? Investment and time. And so like the you break the time, you start from scratch again. So it is kind of a, a question when it comes to these things like habits and systems. If I break a habit off, did I just lose, you know, the opportunity to continue that compounding, if that makes sense? Did I just sell out? Yeah. You know, what comes to my mind here is there's a counter example. And I won't say counter example. It's maybe the end. What should we call it? Antithesis? No, it's not the antithesis. <laughs> I'm throwing a <laughs> bunch of words. I was thinking about erosion. So erosion is kind of a very similar principle of like if you drop a drop of water on a rock, it's not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. But if you drop 10 million drops of water on a rock over 10 years, you're going to cut channels and you're going to cut grooves, right? A river over time cuts down, right? Erosion happens where you, you know, complete mountainsides are transformed uh, because of not one rain, but a compound habit of rain. And so there's something that happens. It's just almost just, it's almost the law of accumulation. But compound interest is a little different because, right, what you have is increasing exponentially. But there is just a very simple, I think, law of accumulation that happens when you have these habits. So if we think about artistic habits, I think your example is wonderful. If you show up, it's almost astonishing how much progress you can make. I feel like we want to, at least me, I want to get stuff done within a smaller time frame than it takes. Yes. Like I want to sit down and pour like go uh, like if I've got a throttle, I want to go 100 miles per hour on this thing and then I want to come off the throttle. But that's just not how most valuable work gets done. Okay, so this gets right into the meat of why I would put this into sustain as a category. Why why this is like a part of sustaining as a creative because if you'll indulge me for a second to share just a story from the Effortless book. There's a story of two different teams that were trying to get to, I'm going to just totally butcher this. Apologize, Greg McEwen, if you ever happen to hear this. <laughs> There's a story of these two like teams of people who are going to, I believe, gosh, it's either the North Pole or the South Pole. I can't, I don't know. But they're going to a place that hasn't been reached yet. And they're in a race. Who's going to get there first? I think it's two different countries represented maybe. And essentially one team has this mentality of like gunning it during the good weather and then just camping out and hunkering down during the bad weather. And then the other team has a a rule. We never go more than 15 miles a day. And they walked 15 miles every single day. Sunny day, nice day, blizzard, just terrible. You know, they push as far as they're possibly able to within, but then they never go past 15 they would have the energy to sometimes, but then they wouldn't. And then those days would be hard, but they would still push to the 15. And they actually got within 43 miles or so of the final destination. And at this point, they don't know where their you know competitors are. They could be behind. And the 
chief person in charge says, we're not going past 15 miles today. Like he could have pushed through and they could have gotten there that day and broken this record, gone where no one had been before. But they said, no, we're going to keep this limit, right? They're going to pace themselves. They got there. The other team didn't get there for days or weeks. Several people on the other team died. And it was a total, like, like several people died. That's enough to say. The other team, everyone made it back. And they were the first people there by a long shot. It's the tortoise and the hare. I mean, it's a classic story, but it's just, I think that's why this fits for me under sustain because the big idea of compounding is that you don't have to win the lottery to become wealthy long-term. And most people who do that, it doesn't always end up well. Wealth is best accumulated slowly, drip by drip, the returns you'll see are going to be at the very end, like that chart that we'll link below. And that's, it's, it's about small investments over a long period of time and trying not to break off that time factor in compound interest. But it's, there's an aspect of setting limits. If you pour all your money into your investments and then you have to pull it out because you made a bad decision, you're going to lose all your, you know, earnings. But if you, have a small drip patiently, consistently over time. I mean, you can go online and do the calculators and see like what it would look like at, you know, 65 or 75. And I just think it's a powerful idea to to remember that sometimes pacing yourself is the best way to actually go further. And to tie it back into the last example we were giving, like from a personal perspective, it's just been cool to see how showing up every morning rather than showing up kind of sporadically for like intense three or four hours at a time. Like I probably work for sometimes 30 to 45 minutes a morning, but that small drip has been way more fruitful when I look back over the past two, three, four, six weeks in the amount of stuff I've gotten done, but it's not how I would expect it. Cause I haven't had these big, like hunkered down work sessions. You know what I'm saying? That's great because two things come to my mind with that. One is momentum. I think momentum's, I probably, I'll just, uh, to throw out a hot take, right? We don't value momentum, I think, as we should. Like momentum's a significant thing. When you get that chain going together, where you're hitting it every day, there's something that happens where it does become easier. And I'm sure there's wonderful psychological studies about the formation of habits and all of those sort of things happening there. But we just we just know, right, if you've done any sort of thing habitually, it becomes easier and you start gaining some strength in it. And so momentum really comes to my mind as you're you're talking through those but also there's, of course, I think it's the, uh, the Annie Dillard quote that says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a minimum presence that we can give. And we, can, we just, as much as we want to as human beings, compress things that take a long time to do, there are certain things that refuse in our faces to be compressed. Right, I may be able to microwave my burrito in two minutes, right? But <laughs> I can't, I can't compress the time that it takes to make a substantial piece of art, right? Or, mm. or to, to write an essay that's meaningful. Like you can't skip revision, and we've talked about this in the Creative First Principles. But there's some things that refuse to be compressed, 
And I think part of the maturity of an artist is recognizing that I can't compress certain things. Mm. They will ask of me that I spend weeks, that I spend a lifetime contemplating. And that's just, it's almost non-negotiable, right? If we go back to, you know, some, what are those principles that guide the creative pursuit? There are some things that are going to just ask you to show up every little, every day mm-hmm. and move a little bit towards it because you just can't, we're not, there's a great Steinbeck line. He goes, one of the first things you realize when you grow up is that you're not God. <laughs> and it's a great line because it's mm-hmm. like, you start to recognize that there's limits. Like you have limits on what you can do. We talk about it, I feel like colloquially, like you and I, and I've talked about students this way, like mm-hmm. a bandwidth, just yeah. a like technological metaphor. But there's there's attention spans we even use, right? That's a visual metaphor. There's amounts, there's what we can give in a day, but our ambitions is for something meaningful and great mm-hmm. and well outside of what we can give it today. But I think we're quick to forget, and I'm glad we're doing this episode, we're quick to forget that there's a gradual build, and that's really, really valuable because I think that's the only way it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not going to sit down, unless it's something very superficial, you're not going to sit down and be an expert at something in a couple of weeks. This goes into all sorts of 10,000 hours or or whatever it wants to be, right? It's just not going to be a day. And so it becomes a question of, well, how am I going to do it? And I do think that you're going to be more in tune. Like your finger's going to be on the pulse better if you're checking in every day. Then you can start to recognize those little shifts. If you're only checking in and doing a big burst every, you know, four times a month, let's say once a week, five hours, you're not checking in on that pulse as frequently, right? You're not going to be, I think, as attuned to to what's happening. I remember a story about a violinist, a master violinist who said, you know, if I don't practice every day, I begin to notice it. If I go more than a couple of days, right, it's dramatic. And there's probably not a person in the entire world that could tell the difference between him playing has he practiced this week right because he's at such a level but he knows look i'm not quite as sharp because i haven't practiced there's there's this there's this i don't know there's an attention to the minutia the little small particular when you're checking in every day that i think is valuable does that does that resound with you at all yeah well yeah and it's i mean to be fair it's a little convicting because i don't do the same work every morning. So one morning I'm doing music. Maybe I do two or three mornings of music in a row. And then, so I'm kind of doing that check-in with that pulse on music. But then it's like, all right, need to edit an episode of The Craft. All right, need to work on a new song map to put out this weekend, you know. And so it's like, there's different projects I have going on, which are good things. I'm keeping a pulse on multiple things, but it is hard to, for me, there's definitely been that question of, Am I focused enough? Do I need to reduce more, cut more out? You know, because it's a hard question. It's kind of a part of, you know, the uh, language of investing and diversity and where do you focus your attention? And yeah, so that kind of caused me out a little bit, but I definitely agree with the idea. I, I like this. I think there's, I think there's tremendous 
parallelism between investment and the artistic pursuit. But I'm curious, do you think there's some places where that breaks down? And I wonder if this in some ways connects to some of our artistic journey or hero's journey from last time. Tell me more. Well, I'm, this is this is me spitballing here. But it seems like the artistic life, as we've talked about, is not really one of quantification, right? It's mm-hmm. not a game of addition. Sometimes you're down mm-hmm. a lot, and then there's the epiphanal moment, right? There's the supreme yeah. ordeal, to harken back to our conversation about Campbell, that's really that moment of realization. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's not quite two plus two equals four. It's like we started at zero, something hits you, you're at 100, and then you jump. You know, there, there does seem to be something that's not quite linear. That's what I want to say. right? If we trace a compound interest, we're going to see that go up, mm-hmm. and we can trace that linear. Like We can trace it on a linear pattern over time. Where I think sometimes the artistic journey is a lot more of up and down and back and forth and that sort of thing, where sometimes it seems to be a bit disproportionate, right? There's not always that nice clean do 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 and you know, going right up. Well, it's actually kind of does parallel though, because if you think about investing in stocks, like you're gonna if you zoom out over 60 years, you see that upward trend. But if you zoom into one year, you're gonna see like the like pretty much the heart monitor like up and down that's a good point a volatile year um but i definitely agree i think it it lacks that's what there's this idea this thread that i'm pulling on a lot just slow burn thought in my head the past year or so i don't or maybe six months i don't know of like things that have invisible value you know like in in their tangible maybe but you can't see them and it's like this is what we're talking about now is like doing some things you can't see any value in it but if you think a little harder there is so much value unlocked from that activity or that relationship or whatever that you just you can't quantify like it's not a numbers game like not everything in life just fits on a spreadsheet or can be quantified so I I think that's kind of what you're getting at and definitely resonates with me. Dude, you're firing me up right now. <laughs> I feel like because this is a conversation that, you know, uh, my colleagues and I have a lot about the humanities as a sphere of academic study. It's like if you read a novel, there's a certain invisible value, right? It's it does something when you say, I'm going to step into the consciousness of someone else, right? I'm going to develop what I believe Martha Nussbaum calls the empathetic imagination, right? And I'm not going to develop that. But that doesn't have like a direct translatable value, right? I can't say, oh, what's my ROI on that on reading Absalon, Absalon? Like, what's your ROI on that, dude? It's like, there's, what is your ROI in thinking about your mortality? Right? It's hard to you can't quantify that. What is the mm-hmm. ROI on beauty? Right? These are the kind of questions that I find so compelling in my, it, you know, in thinking about what are those things that totally. are enriching life that are invisible value. And I think this is I love because this has been something you've been thinking about. I remember you talking about this on mm-hmm. multiple times of 
what are those things in like my habits that I don't see that return on investment that they've got value, but it's not like you did this much and then you can do the calculation about what it was. It's like you can't calculate it. And I think that's what makes it frustrating and hard to persevere on those types of activities. So, you know, for me, maybe an example would be there are ways to quantify this, yes, but exercise as an example is is an area where you invest time, energy, discipline, but of course you can track your mile. You can quantify numbers to like see weight improvements or time improvements, whatever the thing may be. But it's like you can't quantify necessarily like how that makes you healthier at 65. Like what is taking my vitamins today do to me when I'm 45, 55, 65? Or what does take this into the realm of relationships even more loose and vague? How does this conversation over coffee turn into a working opportunity four years later because of a good relationship and turning into moving to a new place and then you happen to meet this other person and yep. then this thing happens yep. and your kid goes here and it's like you just all these things kind of are so interconnected. There's no way to quantify what that cup of coffee for $12 and that hour of time. And, you know, that person who frustrated you driving over there and the inconvenience of meeting, but it was worth meeting them. But you can't quantify all those things because relationships are not, you know, just a bunch of numbers. It's, it's just so much more vague. That's a great, dude, that's a great, that's a great line. I remember someone telling me that like, (laughs) We can cut this if we want to, uh, but when, when before we got married, somebody came up and they were trying to give us good advice. They're like, "Your relationship is like a bank. You put a little bit of investment into your wife. She puts a little bit into you. You know, and then you can draw from it." I don't know why I slipped into a southern tone on that, but it just, but it's really not how it works, right? It's actually a horrible way to do your relationship. Of you owe me five favors because I've put five favors into your bank. And what is one of me mowing the grass? How does that, what's the exchange rate with one of you, you know, I don't know, vacuuming the living room? What's the exchange rate for one to another, right? It becomes a really, like, I think a bad way to think about relationships. You give me three units and I give you three units. And like, and then it becomes this weird, like, how much have you given me? Well, I think this is more important. Like it becomes this, I think, really destructive way to think about relationships. It's funny because I'm like, I totally have had the thought just to be honest of like, okay, so yeah, like I do the editing, Carter does the descriptions. It's fair. Like we're both putting in our, you know what I mean? It's funny because it's just that's the tendency to, to want fairness, to want that sort of, they, if I get this, if I make this sacrifice, they have to make that sacrifice, you know? Yeah. And it's not to say that there's not that going on, but I think you're right that if you start trying to quantify everything, it just becomes really, I think a bad depiction of reality. I had a, I was just gonna say, I had a professor who's like, I don't like utilitarianism, which is the most happiness for the most number of people just as an ethical principle, because the math doesn't add up. And he's basically getting at, he's like, how in the world do you quantify happiness and make it some nice, clean, 
math equation of, oh, if there's this many people and this happiness is worth this amount of, and this happiness is worth this amount. And someone's pleasure is not as good as someone's fulfillment. And like, it's just the math doesn't add up because that's not how life is. So that's got me, that's got me thinking about that sound. But I think it's definitely true of the invisible value. You just, you're not going to get things that, I mean, most great things in life are not quantified. It's something that happens. You know, the other example I had was thinking when you were sharing uh, was rest. What return do you know that rest has? You know, you take five months off of what's your craft. There's no, what's the quantification of that? Right? There's no ROI on that. Yeah. Like, am I taking huge losses or am I going to see huge gains? I don't know. We'll you don't see. know. Like, what's it doing to you? Who knows, right? But it's, but you're saying, hey, this is something that's got value, and I can't mm-hmm. give you a, I can't give you this nice clean point number quantification. This is how much value it's going to bring. And if you do, it's a little bit weird, right? Let me rest for some months, and then my productivity will jump thirty five points, right? If you've missed the point, if you're trying to quantify your rest. I don't know. That was another example that kind of popped in my mind. Yeah. No, yeah, that's well said. And I think the idea to wrap this episode is really learning to see the value in invisible things. Learning to see invisible value. That's that's the quote. That's a good one. And I think also learning to see value in the small things because mm-hmm. small things add up. Love it. See value in the invisible value see value in the small things and see value in the quote of the week because it's time for the quote of the week. I think that I want to share a quote, just a simple short quote from Naval Ravikant, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. I think that's how he says his name. So yeah. Do you have anything that you wanted to share though? Go for it. Awesome. All the returns in life, whether in wealth, relationships, or knowledge, come from compound interest. Hot take? You don't live for one day. You live for many days. So things add up, things change, things compound. I think it's dead on. I think the knowledge one we didn't necessarily tap on as much, but you know, Greg McEwen even talks about how, you know, it's like you learn something once you master it and then you receive opportunities for a lifetime maybe. Like he wrote one book, Essentialism, he was then called the father of essentialism and he has <laughs> a, great a constant name. inbound. Yeah, totally. A constant inflow now of people who want consulting, advice, expertise, because he probably spent one, two, three years talk about invisible value, sure. sitting in a room by himself, researching, having hard conversations, thinking about these ideas, taking walks, talking to his wife about it, like in quantify unquantifiable moments of work which are returning for years in his career. So yeah, knowledge is just like a whole nother area that you can kind of apply the idea of just how information and experience and skill build upon each other day over day. Yeah, I think you're right. That's great. I hadn't thought about that. They build on each other, but they also like splinter in a way. Like the more streets that you go down, the more other streets are opened. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think knowledge is very much that way because so much of our knowledge yeah. is syntopical, which is a term from um, Mortimer Adler about reading, like syntopically, which means across 
basically you're reading for a subject, so you're reading a variety of sources. You're reading horizontally across. It's like that's how knowledge is. Knowledge is syntopic. If you learn something about marketing and then you go to learn something about anthropology, your knowledge about marketing is going to help you understand and contrast and influence how you understand anthropology. If you learn that and then you go to psychology, right, now you've got all these sort of ideas that are going to influence and going to help and bolster and become substance for conversation and disagreement for that. Like our knowledges are always doing that, which is a really great idea. I'm glad that I'm glad that we picked up on that in the quote of the week. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it's true, right? Knowledge is something that Steinbeck said in ideas like a rabbit. You got two of them. The next thing you know, you get 36 of them, right? They lead to more and more and more because they're just opening up new possibilities. Mm. Compounding ideas. Compounding rabbits. Compounding rabbits. What a way to end the episode. Well, let us know what you think and let us know if you have ways you know, one one question would be, what's a checklist or a system that you've built out or that you're like you'd like to build out that would help your your work as an artist? Maybe you're a photographer or a journalist or a writer or a music producer like me. What's a checklist? Yeah. And actually I have a checklist that I use for mixing that I can share in the link description below too, as a kind of just real world example for my life of something that's helped me a little bit. To be honest, sometimes I actually do find myself, like recently, the song I'm working on now, I probably wrote this checklist again from memory. So that was pretty inefficient. I need to go back and use my own checklist, but I'll link that below too as another inspiration and uh, let us know what you think. We'll see you all in the next episode. Peace. Hey, thanks for listening to The Craft with Carter and Colby, where we share what we're learning about the creative process. If you're a writer, music producer, marketer, filmmaker, photographer, or you just love creativity, then this show is for you. Our cover art was designed by Elizabeth Newell. You can learn more about her work at elizabethnewelldesign.com. That's Elizabeth, N-E-W-E-L-L, design.com. And you can follow her on Instagram at elizabethisadesigner. If you like the show, there's three things you can do to help us out. First, subscribe so you learn when we post new episodes. Second, send the link to one of your friends who you think would enjoy the show. Uh, Really, word of mouth is going to be the the number one way we grow the show in any way. And three, if you have a topic you want us to cover or feedback about how we can improve the show or comments on what we've said, you can respond to heycraftpodcast at gmail.com, H-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.